It's a penalty harnesses the power of sport to prevent abuse, exploitation, and human trafficking. We're working to disrupt the fastest growing illegal business enterprise in the world while protecting victims and preventing trafficking through awareness and education because we believe prevention is better than cure. Hey everyone, welcome to the It's a Penalty podcast. I'm Josh Miller, and April here in the United States is National Child Abuse Prevention Month. So today on the podcast, I'm chatting with my really good friend, Callahan Walsh, from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Listen in. I hope you'll be encouraged. Sport brings people together. We stand with It's a Penalty against the exploitation and trafficking of vulnerable people. It's a penalty was amazing for us because of the scope, the passion, and the clear direction around human trafficking. We're enlisting the help of the community and our business partners so that we can teach them to spot the signs of human trafficking. We support It's a Penalty in preventing human trafficking. These crimes will not be tolerated. It's a penalty. Hey, Kyle, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Josh, thanks for having me. So I'm really excited about this episode. Uh, it's a Penalty has a formal partnership with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, also known as NICMIC, and we're so grateful to be working with you to protect children from abuse and exploitation. I know we've, we're in, in, in talks for, for more fun stuff on the horizon and, and looking forward to this, uh, this continued partnership. It's been great. Absolutely. So um, in your role as Executive Director for Florida, what could you explain to us what what is your role? So yeah, I'm the uh, executive director uh, of the Florida branch at the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. But um, as many folks call me at the National Center, I'm, I'm sort of employee 001, if you will, uh, because I've been involved with the organization since uh, I was a little boy. Uh, my parents co-founded the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children uh, in, in 1984, after my brother Adam was abducted and murdered uh, here in South Florida in 1981. Um, I've been volunteering or, or being voluntold maybe <laughs> since I was a little boy uh, to help out at the center and uh, after graduating college and working for my father for a number of years, I eventually made my way over uh, to working full time at the National Center uh, at, at our HQ office up in uh, just outside Washington DC. So I was there for a couple of years and was able to move back to my home state here in Florida, um, which I think was very serendipitous because this is really where it all started. You know, the, the Florida branch, I mean, it's not our headquarters here in Florida anymore. It's a, a, just outside DC, as I mentioned, but the Florida branch is, is really where it all started. So for me, I'm just honored to be able to, to continue my parents' legacy, to continue my brother's legacy, uh, and, and to do that right here in, in my home state of Florida and provide some really great resources to the, the communities and residents here and, and help children, make sure children are, are, are safe here in, in our state. We've got a, a great state. I, I love Florida and uh, the ability to give back to our communities and work with community leaders and uh, other NGOs, like it's a penalty, you know, it's, it, it's a great thing, um, uh, in my opinion, to be able to Know, play well in the sandbox. I think that's really what it's about, right? You know, we don't operate in a bubble at the National Center and uh, working with, with organizations like It's a Penalty and others to make sure that we're doing all that we can, that we're uh, combining all of our resources and all of our efforts to uh, help recover missing children, to end ex 
exploitation to prevent future victimization. Uh, I think that's just just so important. So my role at the center is is varied, right? So I, I'm a spokesperson for the organization. I do a lot of media. I, I do a lot of speaking engagements. I also do fundraising for the organization uh, and prevention education and outreach. That's really where my heart is. Uh, uh, that's where I started at the National Center in prevention education, helping create uh, our NetSmarts and our KidSmarts programs that teach kids how to make safe and smart decisions. And for me, prevention is is just so key. You know, they, they always say, uh, uh, a, uh, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And I, I, I believe that, you know, I think that uh, prevention is, is just so important to, to get to kids and to talk to kids about safety and safe decision-making, uh, whether it's online or in the real world, it's just, it's, it's so important to me. And, and I, I'm just, again, honored to be able to, to continue that work at the National Center and work locally here in Florida as well. You know, at It's a Penalty, we always say that prevention is better than cure. And so I want to back up a little bit back to you spoke about 1981. So in the summer of 1981, um, something happened in your family and it just completely changed the lives of your parents. Could you give us like a brief overview of that story? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, my parents um, married young, um, but my father was very successful and and they lived in a, a nice community and had a, a beautiful little boy uh, named Adam. Um, and one day when, when my mother and, and him were shopping at a Sears uh, department store, uh, when Adam was just six years old, uh, he was abducted from that Sears. Uh, what had happened was uh, when they were there, my mother and him were there to, she was there to buy a lamp and uh, video games were new at the time. And we're not talking about home consoles, you know, the big video game cabinets, right? Um, and there were four boys there, two Argentinian boys and, and two uh, African-American boys, uh, older teens uh, playing the video game. And Adam saw what was going on and, and was fascinated and asked my mother if he could stay and watch these boys playing the video game. And she said, yep, Adam, you know, stay right here. I'm going one aisle over. I'm buying a lamp. Don't go anywhere. And, you know, this was 1981. It was a, a bit of a different time back then. And what had happened was the African-American boys and the Argentinian boys somehow got into an argument. And there was an undertrained security guard uh, on duty that day who was going through her own personal issues and, and whatnot. But what she decided to do was usher the boys out of the store. Uh, you Argentinian, you white boys, uh, you go that way, out that door, and you, you two black boys go out that way. And she sent Adam with, with the Argentinian boys out and ushered him and sent him outside of the store. That's when Otis Tool, uh, a known child predator, was, was waiting for Adam. He picked Adam up, uh, he abducted him, and murdered Adam. Uh, Adam was missing for, for two weeks before we ultimately found his remains. Uh, the only thing that was discovered was a severed head in a canal about 100 miles away from where he, he went missing. But during that two week period, my parents realized uh, that there was no national mechanism for missing children here in the United States. There was no support system. Local law enforcement was barely a help. Uh, unfortunately, at the time, uh, they just didn't have the training and the protocols set in place. Uh, they were very well-intended law enforcement officers looking for Adam, but many of them uh, even stated in the beginning that they wouldn't really start looking for Adam until 24 to 48 hours after he went missing because he could be a runaway. 
Now, this was a six-year-old little boy who had never walked home from a school bus stop, went missing from a Sears department store miles and miles and miles away from his home. Um, one of the police officers even told my mom to, to get in the car and drive the route home because Adam could be trying to walk home, which of course was, was not the case. They didn't know how to put together missing children's posters. They didn't know how to do landfill searches, grid searches. They had no communication between other counties, other jurisdictions. My parents realized that there was no support. There was no help for them. In fact, when they started traveling up to Washington, D.C. to, to um, help create legislature for missing children, they had asked the taxi driver to take him to the children's building because they needed to make some, some copies of some documents that they had brought with them. And the taxi driver couldn't do that. And it wasn't because the building was too far away or, or the taxi driver didn't know of such a place, but that place didn't exist. There was no organization. There was no place for children or for families of these children to go to and to get assistance with these types of issues in these cases. So my parents, you know, waited the, those those horrible two weeks to to find out what had happened to Adam, uh, and they always say that the, the two weeks of the not knowing was the hardest part. My father, as I said, was very successful, but he had lost thirty pounds. He was you know way over budget in in his uh, in his projects. He was a hotel builder, and it devastated him. And meanwhile. We, my, my parents started receiving letter after letter in the mail. The, the Hollywood Post Office estimates that they received about 40,000 pieces of mail delivered to their home and many, many letters of condolence, wow. but many, many letters from other parents of missing children whose cases weren't getting the same attention that Adams got. Now, Adams was one of the first to really capture the nation's attention around missing children. Adam's picture made it into the New York Times and, and Good Morning America and these national media outlets. And you have to think back in 1981, we didn't have the media cycle, the 24-hour news cycle that we have now. We didn't have all the, the outlets that we have, the local news, the online stuff, the blogs, the, the report. We, didn't, we just didn't have that. So to get Adam's case in front of national media, you had these other parents that had similar cases to what my parents had and, and, and missing children. Who, who just, they weren't getting the attention. And so they were writing my parents and, and that's when my mother realized that, that they needed to do something, that they needed to make sure that Adam didn't die in vain. They started the Adam Walsh Child Resource Center in their garage off just a card table and a landline, an organization that would go on to become the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children that we know of today. Um, an organization that just started with a few volunteers, my parents and a few volunteers, now we have over 350 employees. We've helped uh, recover over 350,000 missing children, an incredible number. Um, we, we operate the cyber tip line that takes in reports of, of child sexual abuse online. Uh, you know, organization that's really come in to be able to, to make change. And, and that's something that I've realized over, over, over the time is that it, it often takes tragedy to drive meaningful change. And what's unfortunate, it, it took the tragedy of my brother and, and many other missing children in America early on for, for America to wake up to this issue and to realize that there's something that we need to do and we need to fight back. And the creation of the National Center for Missing Exploited Children. Yeah, wow. That's, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's an amazing story. And, you know, I was six years old in 1981 as well. And I remember growing up um, a few years after that, which was probably similar to the time the National Center was starting to be formed around 84, where I remember seeing pictures of your, 
your brother Adam in the newspaper in his little baseball, you know, outfit. And I remember seeing, you know, being a kid and just remembering like, you know, a, another kid was kidnapped and this happened. And I remember the whole country was talking about it. And like you said, it was, it, it took a tragedy to really get people to wake up to what, what was happening, but also what can we do as a nation to prevent this? And then what can we do to help people who are in a similar situation? Absolutely. And, you know, I meet so many people who tell me all the time they grew up on Adam's story. Uh, you know, Adam, Adam's story was a cautionary tale for many kids and, and used by many families. And, you know, that, that, that's something I grew up with, with my family always saying, you know, we need to make sure Adam didn't die in vain. And that, that was part of the reason, you know, the, the whole center was able to be created is because my parents went out and told his story. They, they told people what had happened. They didn't <clears throat> sit at home and 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 mourn and of course you know you do all that but you, you get out there and you fight back too and i think that's really also what captured the the nation's attention that you had this these parents these grieving parents and as depressing as that can sound you know they they fought back they they were the ones to really saddle up to create the national center for missing exploited children to help children to help families and then my father to go on to create america's most wanted and go on and capture the bad guys i think every missing child that was recovered and every criminal that was put behind bars filled up that hole in my parents' heart little by little. And, uh, you know, that, that, that hole never, never be filled in completely. And that's why they continue to do what they do. My parents are still heavily involved in, in the organization at the National Center. And my father is still out there catching bad guys at the same time. So the, yeah, the fight sure. continues. <laughs> yeah. And, and like going back to that growing up a little bit, um, you know, they, the center, probably by the time you were born, the center had been started up and um and you said that you grew up as a little kid sort of around that um around the the center and what was it like with john walsh as your dad and he was this you know he was on the news all the time and he was talking about um you know this issue and then he even went on to to launch america's most wanted yeah well you know growing up uh in a family uh with tragedy yeah you know, I always knew about Adam. There, there wasn't a time where my parents just sat me down on the couch and sort of dropped a bombshell on me. And, and, and I, I always knew I had the brother um, that, that was no longer with us. But we celebrated Adam's life. Well, you know, I knew his favorite sports and, and movies, baseball and Star Wars. Uh, you know, we celebrated his birthday. We had pictures of him around the house. Uh, I grew up in a family that said, if Adam's song is to continue, then we must do the singing. And uh, I watched my parents do that every day. I watched them channel their emotions and their anger and their energy over what happened to Adam uh, to fight back. And part of that was my father uh, hosting America's Most Wanted, uh, which became a highly successful uh, television show. A uh, 25 year run at the time uh, when it went off the air, it was the longest running show in television history. Now has been beaten out by The Simpsons. But uh, it was on Fox in the early days. I think people don't remember. Fox was on only one night a week back in back then. It was on Sunday nights. It was there was no programming any other night. But Sunday night it would it would pop on, and it was uh, two shows that sort of kicked off the channel. It was America's Most Wanted, and another show starring some young actor. I don't know whatever happened to him. His name's Johnny Depp from Twenty One jump street um and uh and so the, that's what kicked off uh fox and the the show was a success they had uh amazing captures the 
captures from the very first episode until the last um, of, of the worst of the worst. You know, the guys that were featured, and some women too, uh, that were featured on America's Most Wanted were the worst of the worst. We're not talking about, you know, people who are selling a, a, a nickel bag in the park. You know, these are, are murderers, serial killers, rapists, child molesters, the worst of the worst. And uh, my father went around the country uh, from city to city because that's that's what he did. He would go to the place where the crime occurred and profile these wanted fugitives and harness the power of the public. Uh, yes, it's an investigative tool for law enforcement, but it's harnessing the power of the everyday person to make a difference. You know, law enforcement can't be everywhere. And the, the public are the eyes and ears. And they don't want to be living next to a serial rapist when they find out or, or a child molester or a serial killer. And so creating a hotline um, through America's Most Wanted and having trained operators that are not police. We had that bond of trust with the public that you didn't have to give us your name. You could remain anonymous, just give us that tip. And it resulted in the capture of over 1400 criminals, 17 off the FBI's top 10 most wanted list. Um, it's it, amazing. It, yeah, it was, it was a proven, a proven formula, shining that white hot spotlight on these fugitives. And we took that same formula with the National Center and shined a spotlight on our missing children's cases and got those images out to the public in hopes that tips would come in. And similar to America's Most Wanted, there's a hotline at the National Center, 1-800-THE-LOST, that takes in uh, <clears throat> calls in 190 different languages, uh, 350 calls, uh, uh, 300 to 500 calls uh, a, a day. It's, it's incredible, um, you know, what the organization has been able to do and, and find the, the niche that and, and where we can really help out. But again, it's, it's from both aspects, the National Center and uh, from um, America's Most Wanted, you know, harnessing the power of the public and getting eyeballs either on our missing children's posters or on these wanted fugitives, the way that we were able to, to get things done and, and, uh, and really make a difference. And so growing up with, with my father being a, a television host, I mean, he started the show, I think when I was two. So I didn't really know any different, right? Um, and, and yeah, I mean, I think there's some great, great th benefits to having sort of a, a celebrity dad, right, if you will, um, you know, got to do a lot of cool things, go to some, some really, I love sports, so got to go to a lot of great sporting events. Tough to go get a hot dog uh, with your dad because everybody's clamoring for pictures. Um, but that's the one thing I always saw with my father, you know, he would stop and talk to anybody. He would take a picture because it was the fans. It was the it was the audience that was helping capture these criminals. Without the audience there, um, there wouldn't be an America's Most Wanted. And so to see my father just engage and interact with the public like that, um, you know, my father really set some really great examples as a role model for me. And I, I'm very privileged to be able to say that. I think you know, not it, it's a roll of the dice. What, what kind of family you're born into and uh and to have a father that you know you can look up to as a role model not every kid can say that and i i feel very honored and, and, and blessed and privileged to be able to um <clears throat> so you know uh, yeah follow him around but at, at the same time there there were risks and him you know we had constant death threats um to the family to him um bomb threats so america's most wanted was uh actually created out of another show um, from the BBC from Great Britain called Crime Watch UK. That was hosted by a woman and I believe she was ultimately murdered by somebody that she had profiled, a, a fugitive that she had profiled on the show. So the, the, the danger is real. And, and, and you know, we're talking here in America where we have some really violent, violent 
individuals. And, and that, those were the guys that, that my dad was putting away. And, you know, we're talking, you know, that started in 1984. Some of these guys are getting out now and, and have gotten out. And so, you know, I, I grew up um, when we were out on the road, if my father was filming, you know, on, on location and things like that, we had bodyguards uh, just to make sure that we were, we, we were kept safe. Um, you know, I, I, I try to be, uh, you know, still to this day, pretty um, selective on what I put on social media. Of course, if I'm at an event or something, I will, of course, post after I've, I've left, <laughs> um, you know, trying not to try not to really uh, put too much information out there. But, you know, it, it, it's just something I always grew up with. I don't know any different. Um, I just this is this is the life I was I was born into. And, uh, you know, taking on my father's sort of mantle and, and continuing his legacy with in pursuit with John Walsh as I co-host with him. I go out there and I, I'm profiling these bad guys now. Uh, and I have a family of my own. It's something, of course, I take into consideration. But, um, you know, I think the good definitely outweighs any of the risks that, that are involved. I think helping all the families uh, get the justice that they so deserve is it's just so important to me that, you know, I, I think okay, there's inherent risks with anything. Um, but as long as you take the right precautions and, and try to mitigate those risks, I, I, I think you're, you're well off. And I'm just honored. Yeah, I, I just, I, I'm just honored to be able to continue that, that legacy and continue what my father's doing uh, in pursuit and, uh, and, the, and the National Center for Missing Exploited Children. And, you know, again, it's, it's, it's getting those captures and getting those recoveries that make it all worthwhile. It's better than hitting a grand slam. I mean, when you get a capture, you get a recovery of a missing child, there, there's no better feeling. Quick sidebar, as I mentioned earlier, April is National Child Abuse Prevention Month. You can go to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children's website, missingkids.org, and there are a lot of resources there for parents on preventing abuse and exploitation of children. Let's get back to the interview with Cal. Nick Mick works a lot with um, law enforcement, right, on the national level and the local level. Could you just give us a quick sort of picture of how that works? Yeah, absolutely. And just to fill in some of the listeners, uh, if, if you hear the center, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, or Nick Mick, we all mean the same, the same way. Um, yeah, and as you mentioned, you're right. We do work with law enforcement uh, quite a bit at the National Center. Um, a lot of that has to do with our operations, uh, right? So our, our case managers who are working, actively working missing children's cases are, are, are regularly working with the lead investigator um, that's assigned to that case. Uh, our exploited children's division is, is working hand in hand with, with ICACs to, um, to, to fight child exploitation online. Um, we do a ton of training for law enforcement as well too. Um, and, and we really do work hand in hand, both with local, um, but state and federal as well. We have we have many federal partners um, who have liaisons assigned to the National Center. There's an FBI liaison, marshals, um, and these are these are three and four letter organizations that oftentimes don't play well in the field together, <laughs> typically. But I think if there's one issue they can all agree on, it, it's children, and they come in every day. And they provide resources and they work together, you know, 
across uh, organizationally and, and, and working with us and, and each other. It's just, it's, it's a great uh, synergy that we have to, to be able to bring these different groups together, these federal groups together and work with our, uh, our team members here at the National Center to really get things done. Because it's all about collaboration, sharing information, sharing resources. Uh, none of us can operate in a bubble. That, that exists for law enforcement too. There's not just one law enforcement agency that's going to you know, take care of everything. It, it's, it's about working collaboratively. So you know, we've really made it a, a point at the National Center to not only be a place um, that families can go to and, and, and get the resources and help that they need, but it's a resource for law enforcement as well too. Um, you know, many cops who are working these missing children's cases, they might not have had a missing children's case of, of that level before, um, or one that, that's reaching national media attention. They've never had, you know, they might be from a small town with a small jurisdiction, only a couple officers in, on their force. And all of a sudden they have, you know, the whole world media descend on their little town because of some, you know, high profile missing children's case. So we work regularly with law enforcement to, to make sure that, uh, you know, if there's an active missing children's case in their area, we can send a team at them, which is a group of, of former law enforcement professionals uh, from the National Center. Uh, we deploy them on site uh, when a child goes missing to help that local law enforcement, to help that local jurisdiction um, manage the media. Um, manage volunteers for, for grid searches and landfill searches, to do poster distribution, to uh, hook them up with all the national resources we have back at our organization. So, you know, working with law enforcement is just so important for us because they're such a huge part of the recovery process of these children. And so, you know, it's, it's something that not only do we have to do, but we're, we're glad to be able to, to, to sort of uh, cross that aisle and and, and regularly work with law enforcement. And, and, and like I had mentioned before, the training is a huge thing because look, we're all learning the, how these issues affect children. Um, you know, some of the, especially um, what we're seeing online, you know, the online grooming and enticement of children isn't something that's been around forever, right? The internet hasn't been here in, in, in forever. And so, you know, we're still just figuring, not just figuring out, but we're still learning how exploiters use the internet to groom and lure children. And so a lot of that training, you know, is, it gets out there to law enforcement to, to make sure that they understand the issues that what we're seeing here at the National Center is, is uh, portrayed to them and they're getting the right info and, and knowing how to handle situations properly. You know, we saw, and, and Josh, I know you, that you know this very well, you know, it wasn't, wasn't until, you know, just a few years ago where most law enforcement would, would look at a, a a, a survivor of child sex trafficking and look at them as a criminal. But now law enforcement understands that these are victims, these aren't criminals, and um, that they need the, the resources and support that, that they should be getting. But these are children. You know, if they can't consent to sex, how are they guilty of solicitation? Now that we're seeing the, the, the training and the change in, in the mindset of law enforcement, I can't say it's just because of the trainings of the National Center, but that certainly helps, um, you know, shift that, that mentality of, of how we deal with certain victims and uh, survivor services and things of that nature. Yeah, and the work that you're doing, it's, it's such important work. And it's just, when I listen to you explain it, it's such a magnitude of of work that you're doing from the resource end, education. And I know that the center, the National Center was started in part by some legislation years ago, but you're really not a government agency, right? You're a nonprofit agency. Right, yeah, I mean, 
you wouldn't know it from our name. <laughs> it's it's long. Uh, it sounds government like the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. But uh, we're not a government organization. We are an NGO. We're, we're a nonprofit. We, uh, just like any other charity out there, we have to fundraise. We have to go out there and raise money to, to keep our lights on. Uh, we do receive a, 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 a federal grant uh, from the, the DOJ that helps us with some of our operations. But of course, that is restricted money. There's certain things that are earmarked that we have to do to, to do those things and, and programs that we have to run. But we, we operate over 22 programs here at the National Center. We're a mile wild, wide, but we're a mile deep as well. And so, um, you know, when we see and we can spot trends, you know, on the horizon, and if we want to be able to react to those in real time, a lot of times that takes that unrestricted money for us to be able to, to pivot and to be able to adapt to, to new trends and, um, you know, going out there and, and doing our fundraisers, whether it's Hope Live or Miles for Hope or, you know, what have you. Um, that, that's how we're able to do what we're able to do. We got we have to keep our doors open, and so fundraising is is a big part of, of any nonprofit. Um, but that that's that's the point. We are a nonprofit. We're not a government organization. Um, we we don't operate as one. We work with law enforcement. We work with the government. Um, but yeah, we're we're a nonprofit. Five hundred one c three. Got it. Yeah, I think it's good for people to understand that distinction. Um, and going back, Cal, you mentioned that. You know, you have a family of your own now, you know, and, and given what you mentioned with growing up with your dad and being on America's Most Wanted and, and being involved in the National Center for so long, as a parent now who's working at the National Center, you know, helping protect children, what are some practical tips that you could give parents today, you know, given that we don't live in 1981, you know, we're, we're living in a different age now? Yeah. Yeah, parents, um, and I think parents nowadays are, are more protective of their children than I think they were um, back in the, in those days. And you know what I what I want to tell parents is is have safety be a priority in your in your family, whether that's real world safety or online safety. But at the same time, a, a child needs to be able to grow. You know, you can't keep a child locked in, inside all the time. And I think my parents understood that. You know, growing up, I think a lot of people from the outside looking in would say, oh, his parents, you know, had, had a child who was abducted and murdered. They're never letting that kid out of the house, right? And they're never letting that kid out of there, right? And yeah, I mean, I had uh, all the safety rules and, and you know, procedures in place as a family should, but I think my parents also knew that I was my own individual and I would need to grow and, 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 and learn and be a kid and go outside and play and do these things. And so, um, you know, it's kind of funny. I think I was sort of beta tested for a lot of our child safety programming at the National Center. Um, but for the real world safety, a lot of that, those things haven't changed. And in our KidSmarts program, is a great resource for parents that are looking to teach young kids about real world safety, you know, walking to or from the school bus or you know, after school activities, or, you know, if somebody comes up and asks them, you know, for directions or someone tries to grab them, what do you do? So this real world um, prevention education, you know, abduction prevention uh, type resources, uh, we've created a program again called the KidSmarts program it has some great animated videos that teach kids the four rules of personal safety. But what we have now, which we didn't have when I was younger, is the whole online aspect, right, okay. of child exploitation. And, and we've created a program 
program called NetSmarts uh, to help teach kids how to make safe and smart decisions and educate parents and, and, and community leaders around the issues as well. And, and that program has been around since 2001, which is, which is ancient for an uh, online safety program. Of course, the resources and materials are completely different than they were back in 2001. We're constantly updating and changing our resources because that landscape online is constantly changing and evolving as well. In fact, we just released um, season two of Into the Cloud, which is our animated series that teaches uh, kids how to make safe and smart decisions through different situations and scenarios. Nettie and Webster, who are brother and sister, um, they, they sort of go on this adventure and throughout the, the adventure, they learn how to make these, these smart, safe decisions. Um, and it's a great animated series. It looks like a cartoon a child would be watching any Saturday morning. I kind of call it like sticking uh, uh, vitamins in the junk food, if you will. You know, we want to make sure that you know, kids are being entertained, but make sure they're being educated at the same time. Because if it's just driving, look, safety can be corny. Okay, oh, <laughs> we yeah. just, you know, it, it just, it can be. And so if you make it that way and, and it, it's, or it's dry or it's not interesting, a child's just not gonna pay attention. And, and what's important is for a child to remember the lessons that are being told. And so what's also important is to make sure that the resources are age appropriate because kids are getting online younger and younger and younger. The average age for a child in America now to receive their first cell phone is just 10 years old. And wow. for sure, they've been on their brother and sister's phones or parents' tablets way before then. So you know, these are conversations that we need to have early and often with our young children who are getting online uh, and make sure that those conversations are ongoing because the conversation that you have with your youngest child is a vastly different conversation to have with your older teen about online safety. And so the National Center has, and through our NetSmarts program, has some really great age-appropriate resources. So sort of those animated videos for the young kids, and for the older teens and tweens, more impactful videos from survivors themselves, hearing that from a peer um, that, you know, it, this is something that could happen to them, uh, and using those sort of cautionary tales is, is very impactful, but there's other resources like video games and, uh, tip sheets and activities and all sorts of stuff to really drive home those lessons, uh, that are taught both in the KidSmarts and the NetSmarts program. So, you know, we believe prevention is, is just so important, uh, at the National Center and, and creating those resources uh, and those two programs, KidSmarts and NetSmarts, and making sure that they're free of charge. That's the other thing. Look, we're a nonprofit, um, and, and we ask for donations, but we don't charge for any services that we provide, especially our prevention education stuff. Um, any parent, educator, community leader can go to our website, download all the resources, activities, videos, what have you, what do we have to offer? It, it, it's there for the public's taking. And, uh, you know, I always say being the best kept secret isn't a good thing. So, you know, I appreciate you having me on to, to be able to talk about these, these programs because it's just so important for parents to know they exist. These things are there to help, you know, most parents didn't grow up with the internet, right? The, the knowledge gap is so severe. They have a hard time talking to their children about online activities because they don't know what's going on themselves um of course yeah it's true yeah. so so these um these resources are you know they're there they're free they're for the public they're for the parents they're uh they're they're great engaging resources i just encourage anybody that's listening to to go take a look so they can go to missingkids.org and click on our education tab right there you can see our net smarts or our kids smarts programs so cal we're talking about online safety and nick mick has a cyber tip line could you give us an explanation of what that is and how parents or the public can use that? Absolutely. So uh, the cyber tip line is a 
reporting mechanism for any suspected child sexual abuse that happens online. Um, that could be grooming, luring, sextortion, sex trafficking, um, uh, solicitation, all sorts of things that, that deal with, with uh, the abuse and ex exploitation of children online. Um, those are reported to our organization through our cyber tip line. Now, anybody can go on cyber tip line and make a report. So parents, um, victims themselves, law enforcement, and internet service providers, which is actually the majority of uh, reports that are made to the cyber tip line do come from internet service providers. So from uh, organizations like Facebook, Microsoft, Google, um, organizations that have these online platforms where, it, where individuals are sharing child sexual abuse material, CSAM, or for lack of a better term, child pornography, um, but as we call it in the industry, child sexual abuse material, CSAM, um, anytime there, things like that happen on these platforms, it's manda mandated by federal law that ISPs report these instances to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Last year in 2020, we received over 21.7 million reports of suspected child sexual abuse to our cyber tip line. Um, we did see a, an increase from the year prior, um, specifically in one, one category, in online enticement, we saw about a 100% increase specifically in, in that, uh, that case type. And online enticement is where an individual will try to uh, groom a child to either uh, in attempts to commit a, a, a sexual crime. So either to receive sexually explicit images of the child, to uh, extort them, or to possibly meet them in real life, to abduct them or what have you. And we saw during the pandemic chatter on the dark web amongst exploiters talking about how this is a great time to groom and lure children because they're experiencing such an increased amount of screen time. And we all are, parents are as well too. Um, and so there's just so many more opportunities to harm children. Um, you know, the internet has created life for the better in so many ways, it, it really has, but it has created new ways to harm and exploit our kids. And the child predators know that. They're early adopters of technology. They're you know, three steps ahead of law enforcement and 10 steps ahead of legislature when it comes to these things. And they know how the systems work. Um, luckily, we do, you know, catch quite a few of these, these guys as well, too, and, 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 and girls, these, these individuals. But um, they're tech savvy. They, and, and that's why it's so important to you know, operate or, um, programs like the cyber tip line to continue to innovate and to continue to make sure that we're protecting and safeguarding our kids online. Um, I think people don't really understand how pervasive the um, creation and, and dissemination of child pornography is on the internet, especially the dark web. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of parents want to turn a blind eye and kind of say, well, you know, I know what's happening in my household here, but, you know, whatever happens online, that's, you know, that's, that's kind of a make-believe land. That, that place isn't real. That's not, that, you know, they don't really take as much credence of what goes on online in the children's life, especially, you know, during the pandemic when kids are in lockdown, uh, you know, at their home with their parents, the parents go, look, oh, my kid's right there on the couch. They're in a safe place. They don't always know who that child's talking to. They, you know, if they're not checking in with the child, they're not, they don't know what kind of online behavior that child has. And 
you know, we used to have the computer in, in the living room, right? In a central location. And now most families don't even have a central computer. Most everybody has a cell phone and that's how they operate. And that cell phone goes with us everywhere, into the bedroom, into the bathrooms, with us 24-7. Uh, and it allows child predators to have 24 access to our children. And they will use social media and uh, gaming services and all sorts um, as a private hunting preserve to try to groom and lure children. And uh, parents need to understand that these dangers exist and, and talk to their kids about safe and smart decision making and, and making sure that they're safe while navigating those online waters. Yeah, thank you for that explanation. So practically for parents, if, if parents who are listening come across a situation like that, or they think that their child may be, you know, there may be a situation where they're being enticed online like that, what is your recommendation? Do you recommend that they call local law enforcement? Do you recommend that they put in a, submit something on the cyber tech line? What would be the protocol? Uh, you know, whether it's a, a, a a case for the cyber tip line or a missing child that they need to call into our 1-800-THE-LOST uh, hotline, or we always say call local law enforcement first. Make sure that your local law enforcement knows what's going on and then report it to the National Center. Oftentimes that reporting will be done by the local uh, PD. However, uh, it's always good for the parent to you know follow ask and make sure that the local law enforcement is reporting to the National Center or they do it themselves. And once a report is made to the cyber tip line, it goes directly to one of our analysts who then will start adding value to that report, right? So diving into that report, um, using their skills to try to identify the child, if, if it's an image of child sexual exploitation, try to identify uh, that child. Is it a known missing child to us? Is this a new image? Is this a known set uh, that, that we've seen before? Who's, you know, who's the perpetrator? When and where was this image taken? And can we intervene in, in some way? Can we get this information to law enforcement? And, and that's what they do. These, these analysts, they, they package all this information, add value to the case. And then we turn that over, that report over to the proper jurisdiction in that area for an apprehension, a takedown or a rescue. And we've had a rescue of children within minutes of reports coming into to the National Center. It's really amazing uh, how quickly those reports can get turned around and how quickly law enforcement can act on them. Yeah, you're right. And, and the person on the other end could be anywhere, basically. The one who's trying to entice somebody, they could be anywhere in the country. So I think it's important that, like you said, go to law and local law enforcement first, but then report so that you guys can, um, can investigate more. Absolutely, absolutely. We had a, a case that was uh, reported to us, uh, sextortion. And so, you know, a word that we didn't even have a few years ago, right? This is where an individual will get their hands on a sexually explicit image of a child and then basically blackmail and extort them for more sexually, sexually explicit images. And we had a case uh, where a, a young girl was sending over 60 images a night to her exploiter out of fear that she would be exposed to her family, friends, community. Uh, she finally came forward to her mother and through uh, a joint investigation with the FBI, they were able to track down this individual. Luckily, he was here in the United States. That's not always the case. However, when they did track him down, he was living at his parents' house and he had over 350 other child victims that he was extorting at the time. So it's just, again, just so important. You know, we always talk about report, report, report. 
it is so important to do to do that. Um, you know, whether it's law enforcement or the public making these reports, um, we can't work on these cases. We don't know about them unless they're reported to us. And that's just why it's so important. You know, you guys talk about it all the time and it's a penalty. It's just the importance of reporting. It's just, it's, it's just I, I can't hammer that home enough. You know, you, you hear that saying, see something, say something. I, I couldn't agree more, you know, especially when it comes to the safety of our children. And, and you know, if your child has is, is been a victim of, of any of these type of, of crimes, you know, just burying it under the rug isn't the best thing because that exploiter that's on the other end is going to be trying to do that to other children too. And the best thing that you can do is, is help prevent that from happening to any other kids and do the right thing and make that report. Absolutely, Cal. Um, and I just want to thank you for um, taking the time to be here with us today. And I just want to give a big shout out to all of the employees nationwide that work for the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. We thank you for working tirelessly to help find missing kids, but also put an end to abuse and exploitation. If you want to learn more about the It's a Penalty campaign, visit our website, itsapenalty.org or follow us on social media. Thank you.